Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Hey, I'm Matt, host of My Second Self and I on the Podmoth Media Network. I'm only asking for a couple minutes of your time so I can shamelessly tell you about my podcast. My Second Self and I is a unique podcast because instead of an actual other person, Alex, my co-host, is the audible manifestation of one of the many other voices in my head. Sounds weird, but it kind of works. Well, sure, that sounds interesting, you might be thinking. But you might also be thinking, well, what kind of pod is it, Matt? My Second Self and I is a comedy show about true crime. What? How does that work? I believe that with the right tone of voice, different voices, and good storytelling, that even a gruesome story about a serial killer can be told in a way that doesn't leave you feeling gritty or gross. Don't worry, I can see you scratching your head. I understand the murder isn't the funny part, rather it's how I tell the story that gets you to laugh. So, what kind of stories can we expect? Great question. You can expect anything from serial killers, missing persons, cold cases, conspiracy theories, paranormal entities, cults, and pretty much anything within the general vicinity of weird slash unexplainable is on the table. You can also expect a certain level of professionalism in that I will do my very best to present the most accurate information I can, as well as being entertaining and engaging. If that sounds like a good time to you, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcasts. My second self and I. Tell your friends and stay kind. Dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the Podmoth Media Network, your foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. Let me begin by saying that it's great to be back. As some of you may know, I experienced a pulmonary embolism and was down for the count for a couple of weeks. I'm doing much better now, and I'm almost back to my old creepy self. It'll take some time, but the docs say that I'll make a full recovery. So, in honor of my cheating Mr. Grimm, I bring you something a little special. As you know, or you should by now, I'm a writer. I create a lot from poetry to crime fiction, but I also write folkloric-themed pieces that take my reader to a place called Puffin Sound, a fictional cloistered community on the outer limits of Newfoundland, Canada. This is one of those pieces. So sit back, grab your cane and your compression socks, and have a listen. This is the first time that I've ever shared anything in my own voice, as raspy or breathy as it may be at this point, via this format. It may be the last, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. So without further ado, I bring you Of Boys and Bergs. 
In Puffin Sound, Newfoundland, the only thing tastier and more fulfilling than one of Mrs. O'Leary's rhubarb pies was a shot of iceberg vodka. Mr. Pudgett, the community aficionado on alcoholic beverages, created it in his bathtub and doled it out in meager portions to the residents of the Sound on special occasions. Pudgett saved his share for the special occasions he observed on days ending in Y. But this isn't a story of Pudgett's love for the sin liquid. No, this is a tale of paranormal goings-on, or at least one famous enough worth retelling. You see, in cloistered communities like Puff and Sound, folktales were used to keep unruly children and young folk in line, and they seemed to work far better than the belt or the switch. A story told in earnest by a loved one lingered longer in the mind of an impressionable young child than the sting of any object against the behind. It was Tuesday evening, one of seven of Mr. Pudgett's special occasions, when he ventured to his special hiding place, a large vinegar drum in the storeroom of Mrs. O'Leary's remedy shop, to consume his treat. You see, the missus wasn't a fan of Mr. Pudgett's drinking. So to avoid his wife's scornful glances, he retreated to the drum. The vinegar drum had been emptied and cleaned at this point, awaiting Wednesday's delivery. But that's another story. As Pudgett slipped inside the storehouse, rifling around behind sacks of rheumatism-curing potatoes, his mood darkened. His stash of vodka had vanished, leaving him without libation. Indeed, this was the worst day of his life as the jug had been almost full. In haste, he rushed to the pub to find a willing volunteer to get the most crucial of his vodka-making ingredients, iceberg chips. You see, Mr. Pudgett had neither the dory nor the wherewithal to make the run on his own. Upon his arrival at the pub, he found only masses hunched over tables in drunken stupor, none of which could operate a punt, given their conditions. In a last-ditch effort, Pudgett left the pub and walked towards the shed behind the establishment. There, as he expected, he found two of the teenaged Leahy boys, Murphy, the older of the two, and Jacob tipping up the old beer bottles over their mouths in hopes of getting a taste of illicit brew. When the boys saw Pudgett, they quickly hid the bottles behind their back. Pudgett may have been the town drunk, but he could also still tell their mother about the goings-on in the shed, and they feared that more than a fay attack. It's all right, boys, Pudgett began, holding up his hands. I've no intention of telling your mother. I've a proposition for you. A proposition, the older boy repeated. What sort? Well, you see, I's out a libation to offer, and there's a funeral at weekend. I'm proposing that you boys goes and gets my chips so I can make my vodka. Grief goes down easier with libation, you see. What's in it for us? The younger said, his wind-wrestled hair sticking off at odd angles. Pudgett pondered this for a moment. If you help me, I'll allow you a taste. With those words, the Leahy boys were on board. You can count on us, sir, said Murphy, smoothing his hair and tucking in his shirt. We'll hurry home and borrow a punt, and then you'll have your chips. With that, the two blew from the shed in a whirlwind of worn dungarees and dirt-smudged shirts, and galloped back to the small salmon-colored salt box that they called home, 
their red hair flying behind them. Securing a punt was the easy bit. All Murphy need do was ask his mother politely if father would mind. Mrs. Leahy, though consistently skeptical of the two youths, granted permission. They were active lads after all, prone to bouts of boredom and frustration, settling into their limbs and minds and allowing them this small release seemed both fair and harmless. Of course, allowing them to go out into the Atlantic meant that the sea air would leave them hungrier than normal, but she'd make a few extra potatoes and soak a little extra salt fish to accommodate that eventuality. Get it back before father notices, you hear? Yes, Mum, Murphy said respectfully. Jacob nodded in agreement. The boys left through the kitchen door, swapping their sneakers for tall black rubbers and scurrying to the shed at the back of the property in search of supplies. They would need picks or hatches to break off pieces and a large bin to collect the chips. They found both picks and a metal tub sitting behind some lobster traps, and they decided that that would do the job. Without another moment's pause, Jacob picked up the supplies and Murphy ran to the dock to start untying the punt. Mother Atlantic was an angry sort that day. She thrashed her wide arms against the rocks with abandon, hissing and spitting. The boys struggled to maneuver the small craft out into the sound while simultaneously trying to avoid the jagged rocks in shallower water using the punt's wide oars. The waves threatened to capsize them at any moment, and at more than one instance, the boys debated turning back. It was only the promise of their new business venture that kept them steadfast. By the time they arrived, their backs ached and their arms and hands felt numb. Carefully, Murphy and Jacob pulled up beside a smaller berg, using their picks to draw the punk closer. Icebergs were unpredictable and prone to turning completely over in water, a dangerous situation, particularly for those bobbing next to them. The towering structures were essentially sleeping giants, lying in wait for their next victim. As it stood, there had been two residents drowned by a berg in the Sound in the last five years, and the boys had no desire to add their names to the list. Eagerly, they chipped away at the ice, putting larger pieces towards the center of the punt and into the tub. As they worked, Murphy began to notice the ice flicker and change color, sparkling and dancing in the midday light. But towards the berg's core, darkness pulsated. You see that? Murphy asked, gesturing. Jacob shook his head, continuing to swing his pick. I sees nothing. Hurry up. Father will be home soon, and he'll have our hide if we're late. The tub the boys had scavenged worked well, and once it was fully full and relatively balanced, they used their picks to push off and began the journey towards home. In Puffin's sound, cultural folklore was rich with tales of spirits and ghouls enacting vengeance upon unsuspecting yet often totally deserving individuals. The crime of selfishness was said to bring untold destruction and pain. The boys, being of a younger generation, didn't ascribe to their parents' superstition. To them, the tales that their parents told them were as tall as the tallest mast and as deep as the shallows of Mother Atlantic. Hey there, my name is Bree. And I'm Suze. We're the hosts of Crime and Spirits, a true crime and cocktail podcast. Do you love spooky stories and all things true crime? 
How about themed cocktails? Do you love those too? Well, that's perfect, because so do we. Yeah, in fact, we love them so much, we made an entire podcast all about it. Every week, we bring you a new episode that covers a different case or topic of interest. But first, we'll need drinks. Don't you worry, we've got you covered there. Every week, we'll teach you how to make a handcrafted cocktail that ties into the theme or topic in some way. So you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much every other platform available. New episodes roll out every Sunday. So buckle up and sip tight. We can't wait to talk some true crime with you. Bye. It took all of their strength to pull the punt to shore, dark water spilling over the tops of their tall rubbers. Their toes were numb by the time they dragged the tub back to the porch. Murphy slid into the house first, peeking around the corner to see if Mother was anywhere near. A search of the kitchen and parlor came up empty. Through the kitchen window, he could see her making her way toward the church. The boys pushed and pulled the container up the small step that separated the mudroom from the kitchen and over by the wood stove. Finding a large enamel cook pot, they began piling handfuls of ice into the vessel. Murphy found matches and loaded the stove with fresh kindling, stoking the fire until it blazed, and they both worked to lift the pot onto the stove. Soon the ice had melted down, and the boys used the warm water to melt their remaining chips in the tub. It was soon after the last of the ice dissolved that Jacob began to smell something foul. Murphy smelled it too, a sulfurous odor that wafted from the tub, the liquid beginning to churn and swell. A vapor, as cantankerous as the odor now filling the kitchen, began to form. The boys watched in horror as the mist began to make its way towards them, its movement snake-like. Slowly it wrapped itself around Jacob, slithering up his nose and down his throat. Although Murphy tried to wrestle his brother away, it was no use. The boy's body thrashed and convulsed several times, finally lying still. Almost instantaneously, the smell and the vapor were gone. Jacob lay seemingly lifeless on the kitchen floor, his face paler than it had been moments before. But then suddenly, Jacob's body began to twitch. His eyes and mouth snapped open and closed like a codfish caught in a net. His teeth were forced out of his mouth, blood running in rivulets down his chin, and were replaced by gleaming white fangs. Jacob's small frame contorted, and his flesh stressed and split, sloughing off his frame and falling to the floor. The kitchen was overtaken by the smell of burning hair. Murphy watched in horror as a creature, topping nine feet in height and covered in gray, slimy skin, took shape. He knew immediately what it was from the stories his mother had told him. It was a biver. Upon its head were huge antlers draped in tatters of Jacob's shed flesh, and its skin was covered in fine gray hair. It was every bit the horror Murphy had imagined as he sat around the fire as a child, listening to the tales his parents wove. Murphy gathered himself, his legs stiff with fear, and flew out the kitchen door and down the rocky pathway to the road, running directly into Mr. Pudgett and knocking him off his feet. "'What in Jesus' name?' he exclaimed, pulling himself upright and dusting off his slacks. "'Watch where you're going.' "'It's the biver. It took Jacob,' 
Murphy exclaimed, his complexion paler than normal. What are you on about? Thieving my chips is what you're at. We're sorry, Pudget, Murphy wailed, his eyes wide and filled with tears. Biver, Pudget spat, anger rising in his belly. That's just a fairy story. I think we should tell your father about you. Pudget stopped short when he caught the look of frozen horror on Murphy's face. He followed the boy's gaze to the doorway of the house and recoiled. The figure hunched on the threshold was skeletal, its skin appearing as if it would stretch to its limit, like a large piece of poorly framed taxidermy. Get to the church, Pudget breathed. They ran as fast as they could, down the winding gravel road towards Puffin Sound's only house of worship, perched on the edge of a hill overlooking the ocean. When they reached the threshold, Murphy looked back, gasping for breath. Pudget grabbed him and pulled him inside, surprising Mrs. Leahy, who knelt in prayer. "'What's the meaning of this?' Mrs. Leahy exclaimed. "'This is a house of God. You can't just—' "'Mother, it's Jacob,' Murphy interjected, raking his hand shakily through his hair. "'He's—' The boy shook from head to toe, not able to form the words. "'He's not of this world,' Pudget said, removing his cap and bowing his head. "'I'm sorry, Mrs. He's been taken by the biver.' Mrs. Leahy, confused by this new information, walked to the church door and stood on tiptoe to peek out the small window nearer the top. Her eyes grew wide and she began to shake. There, just past the old church fence, crouching on the roadway, was a creature that she had only ever heard about in lore. It paced back and forth, leaving bloody footprints in its wake, and its breath came in great huffs, like an idle locomotive. It can't come in here, can it? She breathed. Pudget shook his head. I have no idea, Mrs. No, he can't. Both Pudget and Mrs. Leahy turned to look at Murphy. How do you know? Pudget asked. The stories Mother told me about the biver, and how he can't come into places like this. Mrs. Leahy frowned. Those are just stories, my dear, nothing more. They are not, Murphy cried, slamming his hands down on the back of a pew. You can see for yourself they're not. So what is there to do? Mr. Pudget asked, pulling a flask from the pocket inside of his jacket and taking a swallow. If that's your brother, we can't kill him. And the preacher can't cast it out, Mrs. Leahy said, pacing the floor, her voice quivering. The only way, according to the story, is to strike the creature with a weapon of ancient iron. If the biver has taken your brother, we might lose him. Murphy shook his head, his brow furrowing. No, there's a way. I know there's a way. Mr. Pudgett, who had been watching the biver froth at the mouth and sway at the church gate, turned to Murphy. The fence is older than the church itself. I suppose it's old iron you need. I allow you to look no further. Murphy's face brightened. I've got to get outside. Is there a door in Father's rectory? I would imagine, but how will you get to the fence? The creature will surely hear you, Mrs. Leahy said solemnly, already grieving the loss of her son. She sat in a nearby pew and began to pray. Be as quiet and as swift as you can, boy, Mr. Pudgett reassured, giving Murphy's shoulders a firm squeeze. I'll try to distract the beast as best I can from here. 
Without another word, Murphy jogged down the center of the nave and ducked out through the door that led to the rectory. He hurried through a small kitchen towards the outside door and paused, his hand on the knob. He took three deep breaths, working to quiet his pounding heart. Through the small window to the left of the door, he could see a ruined piece of fence sitting by the walkway. Mr. Pudgett cracked the church door and slid outside, grabbing a handful of snow from the ground. He packed it tightly, using the heat from his hands to turn it to ice, wound back and threw the ice ball with as much force as he could muster. The projectile hit the biver in the chest, eliciting an angry shriek from the creature. Come on then, you mangy beast, Pudgett screamed, waving his arms, his eyes wild. Murphy opened the rectory door and stepped out into the cold, closing the door gently behind him. He walked to the edge of the church building and peeked around, watching the angry biver hiss and snap at the gate. He could hear Pudgett's raised voice calling to the creature, but couldn't see him. As quickly as he could, he made his way to the pile of fencing, crouching low. It wasn't until the pile was in reach that Murphy glanced up in time to see the creature barreling towards him. The biver caught the boy by the waist, its claws digging into his flesh, driving him backward and down over a slight embankment. Murphy fought to catch his breath, looking anxiously over his shoulder at the sheer drop behind him, a drop he only missed by a few feet, and awaited the final blow. The Atlantic raged a few hundred feet below him, and the sky above him began to bruise and bleed. The wind howled and whipped the vegetation around him into a frenzy. The biver rose to full height and shrieked. Murphy squeezed his eyes shut tight and awaited the end. But it never came. Murphy opened his eyes. He saw Mr. Pudgett kneeling on the biver's back, an iron fence post in his hand, the end of which he'd driven into the creature's shoulder. You all right, boy? Pudgett asked, his voice lacking its usual strength. Murphy nodded at a loss for words. His entire body ached and he was frozen to the core. His clothes were soaked through and his fingers were numb, but he was alive. Pudgett pulled the post from the biver's shoulder and stood back, wiping his face with the sleeve of his jacket, and the two waited and watched as a creature's breathing became labored. After what seemed like hours, the creature began to melt away. Its skin mottled and turned a sickly purple, liquefying like the ice that bore it, and releasing the sulfurous odor that had preceded its habitation of Jacob's body. The biver's large frame cracked and shrunk in size until there was almost nothing left, save the outline of a boy coated in gore. Jacob sat up, coughing and gagging, wiping the mess from his eyes, blissfully unaware of what he had become. His brother embraced him, ignoring the filth in which he was covered, and wept. Mr. Pudgett, tears welling in his eyes, removed his jacket and wrapped the boy, carrying him back up the small embankment towards the church, where his mother was eagerly waiting. "'Jacob,' she exclaimed, "'my darling Jacob, I thought you were lost.' "'You should get him to the dock, Mrs.' Pudgett said quietly, exhaustion in his voice. He's got a nasty cut on his shoulder. Mrs. Leahy nodded in agreement, gathering the boy in her arms and rushing him towards the family practice with Murphy in tow, while Pudgett, who had seen more than enough for one lifetime, headed back to his salt box for a bath. Dr. White tended to both boys, stitching Murphy's wound and applying a bandage. Jacob, despite a few bumps and bruises, was no worse for wear. Once the doctor was through, the three Leahys made their way home 
Jacob in his mother's arms, and Murphy walking slowly behind. When they arrived home, Murphy took the pot of iceberg water from the stove and carried it out front, setting it on a sled and pulling it carefully across the frozen snowy ground to Mr. Pudgett's door. He knocked twice, and when Pudgett answered, he handed the reins of the sled to him. Mr. Pudgett smiled. Thank you, boy. I'll make good use of this. Have a good day, sir, and thank you. Murphy headed home and spent the remainder of the day with his family, and Mr. Pudgett created a new batch of iceberg vodka that was even more flavorful than the ones preceding it. He kept his promise to the boys, giving them each a small sip as a reward, a thank you, and an apology wrapped in one. Life continued in Puffin Sound as normal. People were born, people wed, and people were abducted by the Fae. But if you were a perceptive sort, and you tilted your vodka glass ever so slightly, being one of the chosen few with which Pudgett decided to share, you might catch a subtle shimmer within the libation, a passing glint that was likely harmless, at least at present. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Tune in next time for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until then, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is created using GarageBand. You can find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod, and a transcript of this episode can be found at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, leave a review, and subscribe so that you'll be in the know when a new episode drops. 